Hello, and thank you for joining us again on our Gilmore Girls podcast, Coffee with a Shot of Cynicism. Gilmore Girls is the coffee, and we're the shot of cynicism. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Eleni. And this week, we are discussing episode 21 of season four, last week's last week fights, this week tights. Um, but first, Eleni wanted to, well, as a prelude into the episode, Eleni wanted to bring up uh, something Miss Chatty Patty had to say in this episode. Okay, so first, I do want to bring up something Miss Patty says, but because Chatty you said Patty. Patty, Chatty Patty, shut up. It's never happening. You know, like in Mean Girls, she's like, stop trying to make fetch happen. This it's is not, not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen, Jeffrey. No, so I did, just because you said the episode title, I wanted to talk also about the fact that this episode title is so clever. Yes. Um, because, so obviously it's making allusion to the fact that last week there was a major fight in the strip club between TJ and Jess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the obvious part. <laughs> but I think where the genius of this episode title comes in is in how it says so much bo- more about not just the Danes family dynamics, but family dynamics in the entire show. Yeah. So all of these characters are very good at having big blowouts, fighting big, saying and doing really hurtful things, and then completely conveniently forgetting about it and brushing it under the rug and never speaking about it again. Is that that that's what you get from the episode title? Yeah, because obviously, like, last week fights, mm-hmm. right? Like, last week we were punching each other in a fucking bar. And this week, yeah, no problem. We're not going to talk about it. And you're just going to walk your mother down the aisle. No problem. Yeah, there's that's for sure at play in in the episode title. To me, all I think of is TJ's tights, though. No, they're called air pants, Jeffrey. Yeah, I know. But the whole thing was that TJ, TJ says he's wearing tights. So that's what I got from the episode title is that there was a fight last week. And this week, this week he's wearing tights. OK, well, for me, it was something bigger. OK. <laughs> Because I also think this episode is, um, you know, I think deeper than the the whole fight at the strip club. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, n- we're still struggling with the fact that no one's acknowledging how they've failed Jess time and time again. Yeah. And then expect them to show up and pretend everything is okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, just like nobody's acknowledging the fight, nobody's acknowledging the fact that he was abandoned as a child. And all like, oh, la-di-da, mom's getting married. Let me walk her down the aisle. Yeah. Um, we also see Emily unwilling to acknowledge that there's anything going on in her relationship, even though it's right in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about it. And then... Yeah, I agree. Now, now that you say that, that, that is a bit of a, a running theme in the show and in this episode. And so in this episode, the last one that I think fits into it, maybe not in the same way, um, but I think the whole Mrs. Kim and Lane thing fits into this as well. Oh, Um, yeah, sure. And where I think it differs from the other ones is that sometimes, uh, I believe, and tell me if you agree, sometimes I think it's okay not to say anything. So yes, depending on the context. So depending on the context, depending on the situation, depending on the people you're dealing with, sometimes it's okay to, to be like, you know what? Let's not talk about what happened and move forward. And I think that's what's happening in Mrs. Kim and Lane's case in this episode. Okay, well I have a lot to say about that, so I'm not gonna agree or disagree. I listen. I also have a lot to say about that, and I'm not saying it's 100% perfect. But I just think this episode is very clever in the way that they show different family dynamics and how 
to a certain degree, mm-hmm. everyone kind of uh, is unwilling mm-hmm. to talk about either past traumas or past arguments or current situations that are causing tension. Okay, yes, I definitely agree that this episode in particular is representative of the whole the whole family dynamic in the show at large of, you know, uh, sweeping things under the rug or not talking yeah. about them or everything else you said. Um, but are you are you disputing the what I said about the the uh, fights and tights being a reference to TJ starting a fight in this week he's in tights? No, not at all. But I think okay. there's a reason. <laughs> I think there's a reason that they went that route with naming it that. Yeah, they did. There's, I think yeah. it had it obviously had its obvious meaning, but it had a deeper meaning as well because in terms of family dynamics, you mm-hmm. don't get much more than in this episode. No, for sure. You don't. No. So I think it was really cleverly done. And that's what I want to say about that. <laughs> yes, I think we I think we had, we had a bit of a, a role reversal here where usually it's me who's like forcing meaning into things. You're like, okay, it's not that deep. <laughs> I mean, we both have our moments when we do that. <laughs> yeah, d- yeah, it depends. It really does. <laughs> it's true. We're both divas. It's fine. Um, yeah, so the opening scene, we have Miss Patty trying to wrangle her group of, I don't know, children. Mm-hmm. To do uh, the Maypole flag. Yes. Uh, Funny enough, or not, I don't know if it's funny, but it's definitely interesting. Uh, Scott Patterson's wife makes a cameo. Oh, does she? Yeah. Okay, well, I didn't didn't know because I'm not a Scott Patterson fan. Well, I'm not either, but... Everyone can attest, but actually I didn't know that. It's a piece of trivia. You would know more than me because you've seen it more times. Yeah, well, his wife is the lady at the beginning who's talking about the Banyan boys being trouble. I was going to say, it's funny you're, you're bringing that up. I didn't write it down in my notes because I didn't think it was notable enough. But I was like, that woman is a terrible actress. Oh, my God, she's awful. But that's why, because she's not an actress. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it was fun, I guess, to give her her role or whatever. But I think they had just gotten married uh, at this point. So, like, they Are gave they her still her together? Money. Yeah. Okay, let's... Uh... They, they gave her a fun little role to play off of. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she was not a good actress. Um, it's not for everyone, obviously. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so his wife is there. Uh, what I did want to talk about is that Miss um, Patty talks about working with Joan Crawford. Yes, I made note of, that. I made note of that, too. I was going to ask you, you, you think Miss Patty really worked with Joan Crawford? So here's the thing. So Miss Patty makes reference to Joan Crawford... And she says, um, like, working with these kids, meaning these Banyan boys, is more difficult than working with Joan Crawford. Mm-hmm. Um, so, first of all, if Miss Patty did indeed work with Joan Crawford, she really is the gay icon that we thought she was. Oh, yeah. one Never a doubt in my mind. Yeah. So, like, she's always a gay icon, but she definitely is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but just so for the youngins who don't know about Joan Crawford and why people always say she's difficult. Um, most people know, uh, most people our age who know about Joan Crawford know about her because of Snatch Game in uh, Drag Race. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so, um, one of the most prominent actresses in the 30s, very well-paid actress, but, like, her popularity began to dwindle in the late 30s, and she, along with many different female actresses, female actors, I should say, um were called out in a letter in the Hollywood Reporter. 
Do you know about this letter? This sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm probably not clear on details. Yeah, so um, they were, long story short, they were called out in a letter in the, in the editor wrote an open letter in The Hollywood Reporter, and it, the letter was called Box Office Poison. Okay. And basically this letter was written to try and convince people, so these mega producers, because back then you would sign on with a studio and exclusively work with that studio for like four or five films, you know? Mm-hmm. So basically this letter was written to convince people that these women's salaries were too high and they weren't deserved because their movies kept tanking. Now keep in mind, this is right after the depression. So maybe mm-hmm. your movies are tanking because nobody has money to go to the theaters. Yeah. You fucking idiots. But anyways, um, so all these actresses that were put on this list were kind of labeled as difficult, uh, including Joan Crawford. Mm-hmm. And Joan's, uh, by the way, just to let you know, Catherine Hepburn was also put on this list. And Catherine Hepburn was the first woman to win four Oscars. Yeah. And Catherine Hepburn, I find, was held to a bit of a different standard in Hollywood at the time because she kind of exuded a bit of a masculine image and I think obviously she was still a woman in in a man's world so she was still obviously subject to misogyny but I think I think Catherine Hepburn transcends a lot of these narratives that you're describing because she kind like she had a masculine energy to her that she kind that she exuded on purpose to get ahead yeah well it's survival at that point right yeah um and then this image of her being very very difficult was, uh, you know, bolstered by the fact that she had this ongoing feud with Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who don't know and want maybe like a crash course, um, The Feud is a television show by Ryan Murphy, which, by the way, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. But, you know, it really document. Well, it's based off of the book, um, but it documents their Exactly, their feud in Hollywood. Um, I just find it so interesting that when Betty Davis was nominated for her third Oscar and Joan Crawford wasn't, mm-hmm. Betty Davis said that Miss Crawford uh, like started campaigning against her, telling people not to vote for her, uh, was telling people that if they couldn't go to the ceremony, she'd accept their award for them because she did not want Betty Davis to win. Yeah. I mean... Hollywood. What are you going to do? I mean, Uh, Joan Crawford was the original Petty Betty. (laughs) Yes, 100%. And then her image took an even bigger hit when her daughter's memoir came out um, called Mommy Dearest. Oh, right. Yes. And it painted her as like the biggest psychopath in the world. Um you know, like she would make her daughter, she would purposely dirty the bathroom and make her daughter clean it. She would yell at the staff if they put her clothes on wire hangers. That's where the no more wire hangers comes from. So mm. um, that was also made into a movie. Yeah. Um, hilarious movie, by the way, because it's so bad. <laughs> um, but it's so bad, it's good. Honestly, I, I, you, you know much more about Joan Crawford than I do, which is surprising as the resident gay on this podcast. Um, but I, it's honestly, I feel like I don't know a lot about the intricacies of Joan Crawford because just her image and her life story is just such a cliche at this point. Like that, like I said, the the original Petty Betty, she kind of paved the way for everyone else who was a bit more 
glamorous later on with their pettiness, I guess. Um, yeah, for sure. So I, I, but I completely forgot that Mommy Dearest is associated with her because the, just the, the term, the phrase Mommy Dearest is synonymous in pop culture with uh, a crazy mother figure. So I, oh. forgot that's where, I forgot that's where it comes from. Yeah, actually, in her memoir, her daughter, the the reason they, it's called Mommy Dearest is because her daughter, her mother sent her to boarding school literally five minutes down the road <laughs> because she didn't want to deal with her. Yeah. And she would write her letters and literally sign them Mommy Dearest. Dear God. <laughs> and she made the kids call her Mommy Dearest in public. Well, then... Yeah, it was just a very abusive situation. And by the way, Betty Davis's daughter also wrote a, a memoir about her mother. I think the reason Betty Davis doesn't get the same treatment is because she was nominated for 10 Oscars and people took her a little bit more seriously as an actress as well. Really? It was 10 Oscars in total? 10 Oscars in total, won two. That's impressive. Yeah, super impressive. Um, not taking anything away from her acting chops. Mm-hmm. But her daughter, her daughter wrote her memoir actually when her mother was still alive, and oh. she said she wrote it um, as a way to kind of get her mother to listen to her after so many years of being ignored. So that also documents a lot of psychological and mental abuse. So. Yeah, it's funny you're saying that because honestly, you know, now that I think about it, it makes sense. You know, the whole mommy dearest narrative is a tale of abuse. But, it, you know, I think a years of it being made fun of and made light of in pop culture, you forget that it's no, no, this was a story of an abusive uh, parental figure. Exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, it, it's tragic in the sense that these women also had very tragic life, lives. So, like, abuse is, you know, a cycle. It repeats itself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I the reason I know all this, by the way. <laughs> Is because I bought a secondhand copy of um, the the book that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, my young, what's it called? Jesus, I can't remember the name. It'll come to me. But it's by Sean, uh, Sean Considine, I think. Can't remember anyone's name right now. I should have done more research. But, oh, The Divine Feud, excuse me. <laughs> Is it out of of print? Is that why you found a secondhand copy? Yeah, it was out of print, and uh, I bought a secondhand copy, and none of the libraries had it. So I bought a secondhand copy, and it's actually really, really fascinating. (laughs) So I recommend it to everyone. Um, I'm I'm looking it up on Goodreads as as we speak. Hang on. Oh, look at you. So (laughs) the reason, um, yeah, it's out of print. It made quite the stir when it first came out because these there was always rumors surrounding Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. And Betty Davis was much more vocal about the fact that Joan Crawford was a bitch. And the reason it made such a splash was because um, Joan Crawford actually ends up looking sane at the end of it. Um, And Betty is painted as this fucking devil. (laughs) So it's just they were both batty, let's be honest. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. So I recommend that to everyone. Um, Mommy Dearest is also very well done, the book itself. Have you you've um, read the book? Movie? I've read bits and pieces of it. Okay. Um, well, according to Goodreads, um, I think different ind- like independent publishers have tried to bring back the book into print. Um, yeah. Like there's, there's a couple of editions that were published as early as 2017. So I don't know if it's well, probably... They're it's probably- extremely popular. 
Yeah, then they're probably hard to find because it's like Gray Malkin Media. I'm not sure how you know how how mainstream that company is, but well, funnily uh, enough, we had a copy at the library where I used to work, mm-hmm. um, New Brunswick. Oh well, if, if, of all places to find it, you're gonna find exactly. it in Exactly. So that's why I've read bits and pieces of it, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's very it's fascinating. <laughs> but yeah, all that to say that these kids must be the devil. If Miss Patty has worked with Joan Crawford and she's better. Yes, all of that to say, Joan Crawford with no picnic. No picnic, and we'll post um, we'll post some of the books and the movie and the show so you guys can can refer back. Have you seen the feud? No, you recommended it to me, and I remember when it um, when it was first airing. I think maybe it was maybe they, they these editions came out in 2017 because that's when the show with uh, with Ryan Murphy came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing a couple of commercials, and I love Susan Sarandon, despite her problematic garbage. Um, so I remember seeing the commercials for it, and I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. And then I, like, it was a miniseries, so it came and it went, and I, like, forgot to look for it. And then I read something about, like, I think I read a review saying that, like, Susan like Susan Sarandon regretted, regretted taking the role or something, and there was a whole controversy i don't i don't know if that if there was any truth to that but um honestly i don't keep up with susan sarandon because she's like fucking batshit crazy yeah Um, it's like there's certain things just beyond defendable (laughs) yeah but i cannot deny that she does a really good job uh in the miniseries and of course angela lang is amazing as well um, Jessica Lang or Angela Lang? Jessica Lang. Jesus Christ, what's wrong with me today? I was like Angela Lansbury. <laughs> no, no, she's definitely dead. Um, Angela Lansbury is still alive, ma'am. No, she's not. Angela Lansbury is alive and well. Stop it. I'll bet you a thousand dollars. That lady was eighty when I was born. Angela Lansbury is age 95 currently, born on born on 16 October 1925. Okay, but is she really alive if she's 95? Okay, okay. See everybody, she can she can shit on Angela Lansbury for being 95 and still alive. But anytime I say that, uh, what what's her name? Uh, Fran was stupid. I'm the devil. Fran is a fictional character. Okay, uh, Angela Lansbury is a national treasure. Don't you dare say anything about Angela Lansbury. I get out of here. <laughs> <sighs> All right, um, move but, on. <laughs> but I think the feud, as you told me, is available to stream on Disney Plus. So it is. Yes, it is. Now that you've uh, given me such an in-depth uh, purview, I'm gonna have to uh, start watching it. Apparently. Yeah, but again, it's Ryan Murphy, so. <laughs> uh, not saying anything bad. I'm just saying you have to be cautious. Yes, yes, you do. He tends towards the theatrical. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on. We decided that we were going to do things semi-chronologically this time. The best of our abilities. To the best of our abilities, but also breaking it up into chunks that um, seem more palatable. Um, so let's talk about Lane and Mrs. Kim. Yes. Um, because for so long in season four, we had this big climax of what happened to them, and then it kind of fizzled. And I think at least I was very disappointed with that because I was expecting so much more. So I'm glad we're finally starting to see some movement with their storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I don't doubt that it's been hard for both of them. Like Lorelai said, when she's talking to Mrs. Kim, you know, it must be very lonely. I'm sure they're both very lonely. Um, I think the problem with these two, and more so with Mrs. Kim, um, and with a lot of characters in the show, to be honest, is that Mrs. Kim is very stuck in her ways. Yeah, she's very, like, to me, in my brain, anytime I had to describe Mrs. Kim, I think of, she's just, like, conservative doesn't even, doesn't even justify it. It's like, she's, so, like, it's, and it's definitely a, an, an ethnic uh, immigrant perspective that I do not have, so um, I can't speak to it entirely, but I, like, she's just very, she's, like, vehement, like, vehemently conservative in a way that, conservative itself doesn't even describe yeah she's very much stuck in the it's my way or the highway mentality Um, not even that like i don't even have the language or the vocabulary to describe no i understand (laughs) what you're saying about the that her being very conservative but i think the part that's way more hindering than anything else is the fact that she's unwilling to bend um Mm -hmm. and it's just it's you know uh, and it's not a conducive environment for Lane. Like, she can't thrive in that environment. So um, if we're talking about Mrs. Lane and Mrs. Kim, are we, like, just dipping our toes in and discussing, like, Lorelai and the mail? Or are we going to, like, go into the whole visit, chronologically speaking, ma'am? We're going into the whole visit. Okay. Well, in that case, I have a lot to say. So go forth. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for giving me permission to go forth. <laughs> I'm joking. So, um, Mrs. Kim sends over the leader of North Korea. Yes. To tell her daughter that she wants to meet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that she was the one to reach out because I've said this many times, and I'm probably going to say it a million more times by the time we reach season seven. But it's not your child's job to be the bigger person. No. So I'm glad that Mrs. Kim kind of swallowed her pride after Lorelai spoke to her and reached out. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in this situation where Lane poured her heart out to her and was telling her that living under your thumb was making me physically and emotionally unwell. You can't, you know, you've already poured your heart out. Like, what more can you do for Lane, you know? Yeah. So I'm glad that Mrs. Kim recognized that she was the one that had to make the first step. And... Now for the negative part. <laughs> as proud as I am of Mrs. Kim for taking that first step, because sometimes that's the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as proud as I am of her of coming to the house with an open mind, with a smile on her face, with her extra chunky soy pudding, um, yeah. which sounds disgusting, by the way. But do you? <laughs> um, I just don't like soy anything. But anyways, so as proud as I am of her for all that. I cannot even begin to describe how disappointed I was Mm -hmm. to hear her refer to her daughter as dirty. Okay. I was waiting for what, I was waiting to hear what you had to say because I didn't want to like seem too intense because I have a a lot, a lot to say. So um, I wrote a full two pages of notes for this, for this episode because I have a lot to say. So just um, buckle up, sit down, go get your little cup of tea and just sit. Um, So, to me, Mrs. Kim is delusional in this instance because she, I'm, I'm, this is just like a whole other level, a whole other dimension of sticking your head in the sand and just not even giving thought to anything because 
rationally speaking, where did she think her daughter was living? Did she think her daughter could went out and found like a two like what a two bedroom apartment on her own working as a waitress in a diner in Sars Hollow? Like, yeah. So it, I I was also disappointed because you've made it abundantly clear that you you've you've never given her you haven't given her a choice right you said get out so mm-hmm. what were you expecting her to do and lane made it very clear and lane was very honest with her when she walked in like lorelei said she didn't try to hide anything everything was out in the open and she was like i couldn't afford a place on my own mm-hmm. like what did you want her to do it's yeah it's it's hard to it's because for sure like you said it's not up, first of all, it's not up to the child to be the bigger person. It's up to the parent. And Mrs. Kim was extending a very weak, fable olive branch. Um, but I think, just to go back what you, to what you said earlier about how Mrs. Kim gave her an ultimatum, it was also a very ambiguous ultimatum that to the audience is like, the audience is most likely on Lane's side primarily. So you mm-hmm. from from Lane's perspective... It's saying, like, either you adhere to my rules as you need to be doing, as you should have been doing this whole time, your whole life, or you go you go live like that somewhere else. So she didn't, she didn't like, flat out say, get out of my house, get out your kid. Like, she didn't, she didn't use it in that, and she didn't use that language to say it, but for us, no, the viewers, we, we know. And move out. Yeah, exactly. Like, she gave, like, she gave an ultimatum that, from Lane's perspective, it meant like, okay, eat like sh- all of my secrets that I've been hiding my whole life are out because you know she found everything in her room. So she mm-hmm. knew it was either like get rid of all of this, start from scratch, attempt to live the good little Korean American life that Mrs. Kim thinks is possible, or uh, you know keep my sense of self, keep who I am, and go live like move out, live and live somewhere else. So obviously we know Lane had no choice because we. Maybe in, maybe in, in a different show, she would have attempted to, you know, swallow swallow that part of herself, uh, pretend it doesn't exist, you know, kind of like, I guess, like gay characters and other shows have tried to do of like, I'm straight now. That, that was just a phase. That's not happening. And then eventually it's like, oh, right. That's not that's not something we can deny. So in this like kind of like I said it before, there's a lot of queer subtext in Lane's over like in the whole show, Lane's character arc. There's a lot of queer subtext of like hiding, hiding who you are because you know you know your parents aren't going to approve. To the point of, to the point of like in season four, as we've seen with Lane, like she's depressed. You know, she's alone, lonely, doesn't have any, doesn't have any guidance or role models because you know, hello. But she's, you know, she's like she says when she was staying with Rory at Yale, she says, you know, I'm, I'm gutless. I have no spine. I don't think she says gutless, but she says, you know, she says I have no spine. Yeah. And it's just the, just like. You can just see it in her eyes as a character we've grown with for four seasons so far. You can just see that she's like she's at the end of her rope. So as you said, she wasn't hiding anything when her mother came over because she's like, I'm living on my own. What do I have left to hide? Like, I'm not living my life any further hiding things from my mother. Exactly. So it's extremely frustrating. And we we all know who all of us who have seen all seven seasons. We know Mrs. Kim does put in the effort and does start to come around as the seasons go on. But in in this instance, it's very frustrating to watch. And in my opinion, she doesn't she doesn't get Mrs. Kim doesn't get to be outraged at the way her daughter's living. Like it's not like you literally gave her an ultimatum of you know, you can stay here, you're the child, stay here, live live 
by my rules, you can go live like that somewhere else. And so she obviously chose to go live like that somewhere else. She literally took what you told her and went and did that. So you don't get to be outraged, you know? No, I get it completely. It's like, you know, on the one hand, yeah, she came with an open mind, but it's as if she was like, she didn't prepare herself for the fact that her daughter was going to be living a completely different life. Um, But again, I just want to emphasize, I just want to emphasize how upsetting it is. It's very upsetting. It's very frustrating. And just upsetting that the word that she automatically goes to is dirty. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, it's very brief that Mrs. Kim does say, oh, she's dirty to Lorelai, and Lorelai's like, no. And I think, and I, I can even sense it in Mrs. Kim's tone of voice that she's like, she doesn't want to believe that, but like what she's been taught, the you know, the values that she was taught to uphold in Korea, and now she's brought here to America to bestow on her own child. Like everything that she's been taught in her life has, ta- has taught her to think like, oh, she's dirty. She's, you know, standing in a room with two boys and, Mrs. Kim has never, ever stood in a room with two boys, ever, apparently. Um, so it's, you can just, like, see, I kind of just, like, see it in Mrs. Kim's face, like, her eyes, like, the wheels are turning, and she's like, I don't want to think my daughter's dirty, but, like, everything that I've I've been taught in my life indicates that she's a complete bohemian, a complete, what, sinner, who lives with, lives in sin, apparently, with two boys. Yeah, but and, here's the thing. That's all good and well. Mm-hmm. And trust me, nobody understands, um, you know, this bullshit value system from the old country better than I do. Yeah. Um, But I think at a certain point, that goes out the window when your child's welfare. It's just, for me, it's unfathomable. That's your child. Yeah. That's your child that you're calling dirty. And for what? It's not like you found her fucking... I don't know, upside down, smoking crack. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, what is wrong with you? Yeah, it's it, like like you said, it's very upsetting. And I think if if the show had been made, well, if the show had been made in 2021, a lot of things would be different, as we've discussed before. But I did want to bring up, since we're talking about, um, you know, parents trying to see past what they've, what they were taught, like the values that they were taught with and see how, elements of those values are problematic in our modern age um i've been watching the show love victor um on disney plus and disney plus has been releasing uh, like each episode by week so like um last week's episode so i know like in the u.s with hulu i think they released ep- all the episodes at once so i'm sure people who have watched the show all at once already know what's going to happen but no spoilies um so last week's episode um saw victor's mother who has been struggling with her son coming out for most of the second season so far. Whereas I think it was a different dynamic than what you would expect with mother and with mother and father, because his father was all like worked really hard right away to be accepting. Whereas his mom was having a hard time with it. And you can just see it was cause like they're, you know, they're, they're Latino and they're ethnic and they're just, it's hard when they're, you know, taught such values growing up. And it's just hard to kind of look the other way and all of a sudden just throw out everything that they've been taught. So the mother has been working really hard at trying to unlearn everything that she was taught about gay people when she was growing up. And um, her pastor, who she's kind of been seeing like for advice, has 
basically just been saying like, oh, your son, you know, is going, your son is going to hell. He needs, he needs to find God to, you know, get back on the right path, whatever. No, fuck the Catholics. Exactly. So, but, and so he said it a couple of times to her and she was like, didn't really want to accept it, but that, that was exactly what she had been taught her whole life. So she was still not sure. And it was only when the, it was only when the family ended up telling Victor's younger brother, who I think is uh, like single digits, let's say. Um, they were like hesitant to tell him because oh, he's just he's just a kid, like he can't handle it, and that that was a whole other story. But so they end up telling him, and he you know accepts it right away, unlike what the mother was thinking. And then the pastor ends up telling the younger brother like oh, your 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 brother's going to hell, and that just sends the mother right off, and she's like, uh, my, you know everything that I've been taught is going to take me for, like a lifetime to unlearn, but I know in my heart that. God loves my gay son. And so the pastor ends up saying, like, don't turn your back on God. And she's like, I'm not turning my back on God. I'm turning my back on you. Yep. So all anyway, all of that to say, that scene comes, I loved that scene. And I don't and I don't think any other show geared towards uh, like a youth-oriented audience has gone there ever, or at least in recent memory, especially, you know, it's that that to me is very groundbreaking. So I think if, if you know, looking at Gilmore Girls and Mrs. Kim and Lane's storyline in that context, it would have been nice to see, like, Mrs. Kim have a similar realization of, like, you know, obviously Lane is not gay and Lane, Lane is just, you know, an, uh, a rebel from Korean values. It's very different than a coming out storyline. But Lane, she, I think, she, like, Lane's mom should love her, you know, because it's her daughter, like you said. So it's like... I think us having an opportunity to see Mrs. Kim kind of have that light go off. We don't really ever have that. We have like little instances where you can see Mrs. Kim is growing and adapting, but we don't ever have that a moment like that, you know? So I mean, it's difficult. yeah, for me, I think it's more, I think they would have, well, this is my wishful thinking at this point. I think they maybe would have liked to do it, but you know, season seven went off the rails. Um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I agree. I think it's it's just for me, I don't know, maybe I'm like hung up on the word dirty. Yeah. <laughs> like I just I don't think people realize, especially for a young girl, how damaging that word is. Mm-hmm. Um especially with all the things that we've already talked about, um, you know, in terms of shaming young women. Yeah. Um, for literally anything. Yeah. Um, and this is just like the icing on top. You're shaming her for what? Surviving? Existing. <laughs> Existing? Breathing? Like, what is it? You know, we've talked about it with Paris, too. We've talked about it with Rory. Like, it's just this pattern of, and I know it's a little bit different in this context, but it's just like, just say you hate women and go. Like. <laughs> exactly. It's You know, it, that's what I mean. It's, 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 it's frustrating on so many levels. And we do obviously I'll say it again we do see Mrs. Kim start to unlearn some of the values and ideals that she would that she upheld for so long but even then I think it's I think it was a testament to the character herself that it's like even in the little ways we're going to see her grow and adapt the Mrs. Kim we know and love is the conservative strict rigid woman who doesn't budge you know so I think I think in order to maintain any comic relief that we got from that Mrs. Kim, the writers knew that any growth and 
leeway that was going to happen with her and Lane, like it had to be subtle. You know, it couldn't be like Mrs. Kim does a full 360 because that wasn't really that wasn't really the tone of the show. You know, like like if I'm to compare it to, to the scene I was mentioning on Love, Victor, like it's not it wasn't it's not like Gilmore Road's not the same kind of drama. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not confronting a lot of social issues or something. It's to me to like to me as like a, as a queer viewer i can see the subtext in lane's story but lane is not you know lane is not a queer character lane is just a rebel outsider from her korean family you know so there's me for this is me my example of forcing meaning into it but it's it's hard it's like it's hard to watch it's just it's difficult yeah anyways so moving on uh we also wanted to talk about rory's love life in general in this episode. Um, so I think this episode is a little bit of a clusterfuck for Rory in her heart. Gee, you think? Yeah. So to me, it all boils, like a lot of the events that take place in this episode all boil down to the fact that she has so many people in her head. Mm-hmm. Like, thanks for pointing out my singleness, Tana. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> With fucking Chester. Like, get out of here. You know? you, could you see in Paris's eyes the minute that she met Chester? She's like, I fucking hate that guy. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. She's like, <laughs> I, if I don't get the fuck out of here, Chester's gonna be drawn and quartered on my craft table. Like, <laughs> it's not happening. But anyways, um, also, did you notice that Tana included the Rory and the lamppost picture twice? I did. It's uh, why would you? Like I get, I get why like make a memory board or whatever the fuck, but don't put a picture of your roommate in a lamppost. And if you do put a picture of your roommate in a lamppost, don't point it out as if it's like fucking Mary Poppins. <laughs> or like, oh look, here's here's you with, with the statue of Eli Yale. That's a statue, Tana. It's not a man. It's a it's a it's a it's a non-animate object. <laughs> oh my god, fuck, Tana, get out of here. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's just a lot going on. Paris is trying to set her up with Fleming's son. Her grandmother's trying to set her up with the D- well, with the alumni friend. And then to make matters 384 times worse, <laughs> her two ex-boyfriends are having a showdown reminiscent of season three at the Winter Carnival. Yes. Much, we're more, gonna much, get there. much less intense than that, but yes. Yeah, but we're going to get there. I just want to talk about her love life in general at this point and what ends up being a very disaster, uh, a very disastrous date, I should say, with Graham, the guy that Emily sets her up with. Yes. So I think when they're first introduced, he actually seemed like a nice guy. Um, You know, good looking, polite. He invited her out with his friends. He helps her pack. Like, it seems like a good deal. Why not? I'll go out with, you know, whatever. Um, when they do go on their group hang, though, uh, he's a complete douche. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna call bullshit on everything you just said. Like from the from the moment that um Emily introduced them, I'm like, no, no, it's a no for me. No, but listen, I was like, I, I obviously I didn't think it was gonna go anywhere. I, I thought, you know, like I remember first watching it and being like, all right, it's a guy that Emily's introducing her to. Obviously, this is not gonna last. Mm-hmm. Um. But did I think he was going to ignore her the whole night, get way too drunk, want to put her in a car with his drunk friend and, like, ditch her at the bar? No. <laughs> By the way, this entire date was a cautionary tale to women. 
Oh, 100%. Like, this date taught me so much. Number one, ladies, listen up. Always meet the person there. Yeah. Number two, make sure you have cash, not just cash, not just debit or credit. Yeah. Number three, don't walk alone at night. And number four, make sure that someone you love knows where you are. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this, I think this started my anxiety of as a woman. <laughs> I was going to say, when you said make sure you have cash, that just brings me back to, you know, a past life when we could actually go out and do things. Yeah. Um, at the time, like when I was a teenager, if I was going anywhere, like even if I was, even if I was like before I would be going downtown or anything, like my mom would always make sure I to tell me like to have cash on me. Yeah. And like the stories, she like the, the stories and the rationale and the reasoning she would give me when I was younger, like at the time, I'm like what? That would never happen. And of course, like she's exaggerating, but yeah. looking back, I'm like, no, no, it's important, especially if you're going somewhere you have, like foreign, you've never been there, mm-hmm. especially, especially as a woman, I'm not a woman, but just in any, in any scenario, if you're going somewhere unknown, you're not sure what the vibe's going to be, just like, Phone, cash, any like, and make sure a, a loving relative knows where you are. Exactly. <laughs> um, and women, when all else fails, keep your keys between your knuckles. Yes. Um, but yeah, all that to say, date from hell. Um, and then Rory realizes she doesn't have cash. This angel of a waitress tells her not to walk at night. Ladies, look out for each other. And Rory decides to call fucking Dean. So I think the I think the evening went from bad to worse, cause like for me at least. <laughs> um, but she says, and I quote, "I didn't know who else to call," and I call bullshit on that. Oh, one hundred percent. Because you could have called twelve people before calling Dean, your mother. Luke would have dropped everything. Hell, I would have called Emily and told her what a douche nozzle her friend's son was. But see, before we jump into Rory and, Rory and Dean, I think it's important to acknowledge that the, I don't know, preppy, respectable young gentleman that Emily chose turned out to be the biggest douche who doesn't know how to treat a woman, or not even a woman, a date, doesn't know how to treat a date. A human um, being, I would say. Yeah, a human being of any kind doesn't know how to treat them with respect. Um, so I think it's like it's important to bring up for me at least because Emily um, or Rory says, you know, it's not Emily's fault that the date was her. I'm like, yes, it is. Like that's Emily being like, oh, this is a respectable gentleman. He comes from good breeding, whatever. Yeah. Knew, knew, him, knew him when he was in diapers, whatever the fuck. It's it's just a, it's frustrating once again because. It's if if in that wasn't the point of the, of the of the interaction anyway, but if push came to shove, it would have been an interesting situation if Rory had said, uh, you know, you're all you and Richard are all uptight about appearance and respectability of the family, whatever. Um, just because preppy gentlemen are come from good families doesn't mean they aren't trashy douche, trashy douchebags, you know, like. Yeah, I wish I sometimes wish in this show. Um, because it's not the first time we've seen this dynamic. I think the writers do this on purpose. We saw it the first season with Tristan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Rory's like, oh, you're in good hands. Uh, Rory, Richard's like, you're in good hands. You know, Tristan, I know his grandfather, blah, blah, blah. 
we have it in this instance as well. And then we'll see it again in season five where they throw their like Yale alumni party and there's that really sleazy guy. Ugh. Yeah, I think the writers obviously do that on purpose to show us like Richard and Emily are so hell bent on their daughter and granddaughter marrying someone quote unquote respectable and mm-hmm. from good breeding and that these guys are never like I'm not saying all these men but I'm just saying like every instance of that that we've seen in this show it's been a complete like, disaster mm-hmm. and like you're a it's almost as if Richard and Emily rather they sacrifice their happiness for the sake of appearances. Yeah. And to me, like I see those parallels with Mrs. Kim as well, right? Like Mrs. Kim would rather Lane be miserable and follow her Korean rules um, and live under her roof, or if not, get the fuck out, you know? Yeah. To me, it goes even deeper than that with uh, Richard and Emily recommending, you know, men with good reading. Cause I think what a lot of, uh, you know, not to sound too snobby or generalizing, but I think what a lot of people like Richard and Emily, up like upper class people, I guess, don't realize or, or like not even don't realize, refuse to acknowledge or speak about is that the quote unquote good breeding they speak of often leads to uh, douchey white privileged men who think that women are, are at their disposal and then that therefore they can treat them like trash and get away with it because their family's like, oh, they're good boys. It's like, no, no. That's not how this works. Yeah. I mean, listen, we've all met a Graham in our life. (laughs) And we all know that the Grahams of the world are fuckboys. I was going to say, I'm a bit biased when it comes to Graham. I probably hated him, like, the very first time I watched this episode. First, like, you know, with fresh eyes, I hated him because... Um, the same actor played Duncan Kane on Veronica Mars, and he was also trash, so... Okay, you need uh, to stop letting your Veronica Mars desperate housewife days of our lives bias get in the way here. Okay, listen... Okay, first of all, in the immortal words of Elizabeth Hasselbeck, let me speak. You did! Um, <laughs> Veronica Mars is very popular among the same generation of fans as Gilmore Girls, so don't even lump it with your all, like, Get me like soap operas because Veronica Mars is also a cult favorite. So just because Elaine doesn't like it doesn't mean that no one likes it, okay? I didn't say that. No, but you're lumping it together with Desperate Housewives and it's not the same thing. No, the reason I'm lumping it is because you always bring up Desperate Housewives, Veronica Mars, and Days of Our Lives. I only I don't bring up Days of Our Lives. I don't watch Days of Our Lives. It's the it's the Young and the Restless. Excuse you. They're all the same. No, they're not. But um, the reason, okay, well, the reason why the actor was on the same show is because it's the same same era. So that's why I'm bringing it up. And Duncan Kane was also gross. But I'm saying the same actor played the sa- this role because it's the same kind of sleazy character. Oh, so he's good at playing the sleaze. Yeah, and not like he wasn't like overly sleazy. I just didn't really like the character on Veronica Mars. Maybe that's because I said my own bias, but the like Graham in general just represents douchey white privileged fuckboys, as you said. I think uh, we all know a Graham. Anyways, um, listen, all this to say, like to put a cap on Rory's love life and we'll come back to the dynamic between her and Dean. I think in this episode, everyone's comments got to her. And I think more than that, um, I think this interaction with this guy it just got her thinking like I don't want to date especially if it's going to be like this 
Mm-hmm. And I think the reason she calls Dean in this situation is because everything was so comfortable with Dean. Yeah. Um, you know, like she never had to worry about that he was going to get drunk and put her life in danger. <laughs> so more than like, I think she misses the idea of him and the familiarity of him way more than she misses him. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought about that. Like, do you think Rory feels drawn back to Dean because early adulthood is lonely and everyone keeps reminding her that she's alone? And do you, like, do you think she yearns for the teen puppy love security that she had with Dean? So I think there's a lot going on with Rory um, being drawn to Dean in this scenario. I think, I think part of it is, like you said, being on her own at college, having the uncertainty of like not being the perfect person she was in high school is getting to her. So I think she's nostalgic for that time in her life. Yeah. And obviously Dean played a big part of that time in her life. I think the other part of it and the part that we don't talk about enough and that we're going to in this episode um, is that she's still, I think, this is me, I think she's still reeling from Jess's confession. Um, and the yeah, fact, and the thing agree. is, the fact, the, the, the reason I think, especially right now that she's drawn to Dean, um, like I said, the familiarity is because there was never any uncertainty or craziness with Dean, right? It was very stable. It was very vanilla. There were no twists and turns. Now she's gone out on this date with this guy. Like, he's abandoned her. She's like, oh, my God, is this what dating is? Everything was up in the air with Jess. I think, really, she's just craving, like, a sense of her old self. And Dean represents that for her. Yeah, so it's not a matter so much of Rory still has feelings for Dean. I think, like you said, she's nostalgic for an easier time in her life before, you know, we, before she entered early adult, the perils of early adulthood and had, and realized like, Oh crap, life is not as simple and perfect as I made it out to be. Yeah. And I think the, the, the fact that Dean, you know, the fact that they've also had this conversation prior, um, to like Dean also not knowing what direction his life is going into. And, him also being unsure of I think him also craving a simpler time where everything was just good and stable with Rory Mm -hmm. I think they're both drawn to each other not because they still love each other but I think they're just craving that feeling again yeah like we talked about who wants to fucking grow up nobody right exactly and like we talked about a few weeks back of Dean being a form of a soul-sucking dementor, he's like... You said that. <laughs> yes. And you and you is somewhat agreed. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, like, they're both kind of in the same place emotionally, I think, and that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean they still have feelings for each other. It's that they're, they're both unhappy with their current selves in early adulthood. Rory not feeling like the perfect daughter or not daughter not feeling like the, like the perfect her perfect self like you said yeah, the perfect and then, version of herself. yeah the perfect version of herself and then dean i mean i think dean's issues are self-explanatory but dean feeling like he 
I guess made a mistake getting married so young and not ha- and not having enough money to keep everyone satisfied. Whatever. There's a long list of reasons why Dean's not happy, but I think it is important to note, and obviously Dean fans aren't listening to us, but they would dis- definitely disagree that Rory and Dean didn't necessarily still have l- loving romantic feelings for each other anymore at this point. They were just drawn to each other because they're both nostalgic for a simpler time. Yeah, and I think as we see this, this relationship, ugh, I hate using that word, but as we see this relationship unfold, both in this episode and the next episode and the coming episodes, um, I think it becomes more and more clear that they're just with each other, not because of love, but because they crave that intimacy that they once had. Yeah. And because it's convenient. Yeah, and you know, Rory is reminded about a hundred times in this episode alone that she hasn't dated anyone. And Lorelai says, like, why aren't you dating one in, by the way? It's like just a constant reminder of I'm alone and early adulthood is hard enough as it is. Yeah. Especially, like, she just finished her first year of college. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as As I didn't. So it's like... The, the constant reminder of she's a, doesn't have a romantic partner of any kind. It's like, hey, remember when I was with Dean? That was so much such simple such a simpler time. Let's go back to that just for no good yeah. reason. Yep, I agree. So let's put a pin in Rory and Dean because we're gonna come back to it to, at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk about Lorelai and Luke and this whole wedding. <laughs> um, in which Dean uh, Dean Jess plays a role and Liz and TJ and all that. Um, so Jess is back in town for the wedding, obviously. Um, he's reading the book that Luke gave him, the love books, as we call them. Um, and, you know, he's going along with the motions. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think he's happy, but he's there. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was coerced, but he's there. Um. But yeah, so Lorelai and Luke go on their date. That's not actually a date because I'm sorry, no matter what the Insta fans say, that was not an ask out. Last <laughs> um, so we see Luke getting ready for the we- wedding and you can kind of tell he's nervous. He's trying to pick the right tie. Jess can tell he's nervous and he helps him out. It's very subtle, but it's adorable. Um, TJ is loving his tights. Yes. He's so fucking happy about these tights. Um, okay, fine. <laughs> and I have to say, just as a general point in this, the like, the whole wedding situation with Lorelai and Luke, I think up until the moment they dance, mm-hmm. it's all very tame. Yeah, it's very much like love, like the loving friendship they have want to come to the, want to come to the wedding as my guests, not... Yeah. All very tame. It's the same Luke and Lorelai banter that we know and love. It's Lorelai teasing Luke and him being a little grumpy. Like, not much has changed. Mm-hmm. And I think from a fan's perspective, watching that the first time around, you're almost disappointed because you've been waiting for this moment for so long. And you're just on the edge of your seat for someone to make a move, for someone yeah. to take that first step, cross that line. And you're just like, come on! <laughs> um. You know, but yeah, so up until that point where they dance in general, I think it was very tame. I do have to say, when they were trying not to crack up at that song that the minister sang, mm-hmm. I could not stop laughing. Yeah, especially because the whole 
like just I'm sorry, the whole Renaissance themed wedding is just laughable in general. So can't yeah. blame them. <laughs> I mean, listen, when you look at Liz and TJ, they're a little whack of doodles too. So like it makes sense for them. And, um, but can and I the just wedding say, was very on brand for Stars Hollow. <laughs> oh, 100 percent Nobody blinks. They're all like, yeah, Renaissance during the town square, let's go. <laughs> Anyways, but um what a quirky, terrible, beautiful song. I know. <laughs> Do you think, like, the writers had so much fun writing that? I think they wanted something that would encapsulate everything that Liz and TJ are. And we did, we haven't known them for very long, obviously, as viewers. But yeah. I think they I think they just they wanted something to uh, just capture this quirky Stars Hollow moment of a Renaissance-themed wedding in the town square. It's like, yes, that's exactly what we needed for that moment. <laughs> God, and it just, it's made even funnier by the fact that, like, Jess, Lorelai, and Luke are trying so hard not to laugh, and Liz and TJ are, like, looking at this guy with tears in their eyes. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, no! <laughs> who, by the way, the wedding officiator is also the town troubadour who got evicted in season one. Yes. <laughs> I refer to him as the, ta- the actual town troubadour, the actual town troubadour's nemesis. Yes, the nemesis. Um, okay, so Lorelai goes to Miss Patty's where Liz is getting ready, and she helps her with her dress. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that moment, Liz asks, Jess walks in, and Liz asks Lorelai if she and Jess have met. Um, Jess, uh, Lorelai tells Liz that Jess used to date Rory, and Liz automatically assumes the worst and says, oh my god, you broke her heart, don't tell me you broke her heart. And... I'm so happy that Lorelai didn't throw Jess under the bus. Yeah, because she had every opportunity to 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 say something negative and she didn't. Yeah, and I think mother to mother, she recognized that Liz was so happy to have Jess in her life right then, walking mm-hmm. the aisle, and she said, you know what, I'm not going to ruin this. I'm just going to say, no, it didn't work out, and that's it, you know? Yeah. So I'm glad she's a little bit more aware. <laughs> but I'm also not pleased with Liz at all in this episode and and clearly not in any other episode we've discussed so far yeah. because she, like just she, obviously she's happy. She's, she doesn't want to, uh, I guess, be brought down by negative feelings of the past. Like we were talking about last week of she just wants to move forward, which you can't blame her for. But at the same time, in this, in like the whole that whole scene in, in Miss Patty's studio when Lorelai is helping to fix the dress, and she's like, "Oh, you you broke her daughter's heart." That that like you said, that was her first. Her and her instinct was to say that Jess did something wrong. It's like yeah, she's, so it was my plug-in son. Yeah, but even then, she's like immediately ev- evading responsibility for her son once again, as in like he's grown. I don't know. Like it's just no one took responsibility for him. It's like how do you, how can you stand there? as a parent and be like, oh, you broke her daughter's heart. You do, you don't even know your, you, you don't even know your son. Like you don't even know what kind of person he is to be dating someone. You know what I mean? Like you don't know, like it, ugh, ugh, it's just frustrating. Again, you, you don't know who your son is. How can you automatically assume like, oh, he's a heartbreaker. I don't want to be like, like his father or whoever rattles off a whole list of men. It's like, you are ridiculous and I can't be around you. <laughs> Yeah, so here's the thing. Now that you said she rattles off a whole bunch of men, we also learn a really another interesting tidbit that gives us a lot more insight into Jess's life and upbringing, right? Because mm-hmm. we learn that this is at least at least Liz's fourth husband. Yeah. 
So when we talk about dre- dress, <laughs> when we talk about Jess growing up in an unstable environment, and when he makes those sarcastic comments about, oh, I'll just catch the next one, referring to Liz's weddings, those things are rooted in something deeper, right? It's yeah. rooted in a bigger trauma, in a bigger hurt that he definitely hasn't dealt with. Exactly. And you know, Liz getting to say like, oh, I don't want him to be a heartbreaker. You know, like I want him to be like my third husband that died after. Like, what the fuck, lady? <laughs> exactly, though. It's just it's frustrating. Again, I think it's called, just just call this episode. The title is frustrating. Yeah. Um, it's obviously not. That was a joke. But um, <laughs> it's just annoying because. You don't know, like, again, you just don't know your son. Like, how can you just stand there and be, like, automatically assume just oh, heterosexual nonsense? I'll just, I'll just say that. There we go. <sighs> so you automatically assume, like, oh, he's a man. He was dating a girl, heartbreaker. Like, no, ugh, do better. Mm, it doesn't happen. But anyways. It doesn't. <laughs> um, okay. So the reception starts off happy. TJ's walking around and talking about his air pants. Um. <laughs> Then things get a little rocky when Lorelai tells Luke that Jess is reading the love self-help books and Luke gets really defensive and snaps at her. So I can understand Luke's reaction because he himself used those books to get on this quote unquote date, but it's not a date. (laughs) But, but I can also see him getting defensive on Jess's behalf. Because I think Luke in this moment, or, you know, this episode and last episode, he sees his nephew making an effort. Yeah. You know, last week they had a really honest conversation about Jess's feelings for Rory. You know, he sees him trying with his mother. And I think Luke really believes that he's on the right path. So it may not be the path that Luke wanted for him originally, but he's realizing that Jess is going to be okay, at least with a little bit of effort. So when Lorelai then mocks that effort that he sees Jess putting into himself, it just, I think, I think the protectiveness in Luke kind of comes out. Do you agree? Yeah. And it like protectiveness and also, as like also just being defensive because he clearly also read the same books. Yeah, for sure. No, I don't doubt that at all. It's like, I think it's protective, like protectiveness, but also... Uh, he's just like he he's just kind of shrugging off judgment on self help books in general, but also like not self not just self help books, but just like like not accepting judgment on wanting to better yourself. Like mm-hmm. it's because that like to me that's one of Lorelai Gilmore's main hypocrisies is that she came from you know this rich bougie background, didn't fit in you know, dug her way out, had raised a child by herself, the whole shebang, Mm -hmm. and then proceeds to then always be sitting on a high horse when it comes to people that she, that she decides are kind of beneath her. And I think we've discussed to death that Lorelai thinks, and the whole town obviously, but Lorelai in particular thinks that Jess is not good enough. Yeah. And it's, so when you think about it in that sense, regardless of how this podcast in general feels about Jess, but it's just like, when you think about it that way, when you see someone making an effort, even reading a self-help book, like regardless of how you feel about self-help books, it's just maybe don't, maybe just like not and yeah. <laughs> don't say anything. Yeah, no, I, I, I had the same observation. I think part of Lorelai likes to make fun of this type of book or, mm-hmm. you know, even when she makes little jabs about other things throughout the 
show. Like, she doesn't like bubbly people. She doesn't like this. You know, like, we know Lorelai's personality. I think deep down, she knows she would benefit from something like this. You know, maybe yeah, not exactly. the love in particular. But mm-hmm. if there's if there was ever anybody who needed a self-help book, it's Lorelai Gilmore. I was going to say, there's, a there's like, a form of... It's like a, there's a form of judgment in yourself when you judge others. So it's like, exactly. um, yeah. the book I'm reading right now is uh, called A Star is Bored by Byron Lane, which Eleni has also read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just come, when you were talking about that, came, a line from the book came to mind that the main character's uh, therapist said to him was, when you judge others, ju- or judging others is a form of judging yourself. So I think Lorelai Gilmore is extremely re- representative of that and the way that, and I think a part of all of us when we judge others is we're silently judging ourselves. Yeah. Um, but Lorelai Gilmore in particular, she's judging, she's judging the self-help book because deep down she knows like she could also benefit from bettering herself from a self-help Absolutely. book. And <laughs> one other thing that I noticed and I want to point out is when Lorelai says to Luke, like she's rattling off like random titles, she's like, uh, you know, he's reading Love Yours. She, he's reading a book about love. And she says to Luke, uh, one of the titles that she makes up is How to Love When You've Never Been Loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me is very telling that she chooses that title. Yeah. Because to me, that shows that she's well aware of how un- unwanted Jess was. Yeah. And she's kind of making light of it. Like she was just in Miss Patty's when Liz was like, oh, well, this is my fourth husband, at least, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, you know, she knows Jess's background. And it's just like, you're making light of that. And I just don't understand. I'm, I think I'm just still really confused as to what it is exactly that Lorelai, why it is, I should say, that Lorelai is unable to get past their past, I guess. Yeah. Like, Lorelai is so willing to give everyone a free pass or a second chance or whatever. And, like, it can't be from season two that you're still holding a grudge because he drank one of your beers. Like, fuck off. No, not even that. Like, not even not even just, like, drank, like, drank one of your beers or, like, crashed your daughter's car. Like, it's she's just holding on to this bitterness that is kind of, like, th- th- like this bitterness against Jess that kind of spread a- around the town. You Like, we mentioned it when he first came yeah. back in episode uh, 13, I I think it was. It's like, Jess was demonized by this town for no good reason. Yeah, yeah. So I think she's she's just on the bandwagon at this point. And, you know, at every turn, the more and more that we dissect and analyze, all bias aside, I know that we are married in my imagination, but, like, this boy deserved better. I know. (laughs) No, I know. Even even she even my lovely co-host who bullies me for being married to him in my imagination she agrees Jess deserved better, ladies and gentlemen. Are you done? Are you done? done? (laughs) Let me speak. (laughs) Okay, shut up. So um, (laughs) so um, after that, Luke Lorelai approaches Luke and asks if everything's okay. Um, you know, are we good, she says. And I'm glad she was the one to apologize because we don't often get to see her admit when she's wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's even rarer that we catch her being vulnerable. Yeah. So I'm glad she was the one to go up to him. I think the fact that Luke was also a little bit vulnerable in that moment and could kind of be a little bit self-deprecating and say, yeah, those books are stupid. Um, I think it made that whole interaction better. 
And I think the the vulnerability you mentioned is a very, very big foreshadow now that you mentioned it. I didn't, I didn't think of it until you just said it, but it's a very big foreshadow for obviously what's coming in the season finale. Yes, for sure. Um, so Luca asked Lorelai to dance, and as a fan, you're thinking, yes, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> and I honestly, just- honestly, though, the first time that I watched season four, I was just... I was so annoyed that it, that Luke and Lorelai hadn't happened by this point. I was just, like, over it, pretty much. And I'm, like, by the time it, I got to the end of the season, I'm, like, oh, is it actually happening, though? Is, like, okay. and then I even only by, I, I trust issues. And, like, it took, yeah. me a couple, it took me a couple episodes into season five. I'm, like, okay, it's happening. Okay. You're, like, I don't <laughs> fucking trust you, Amy. I don't. <laughs> um, so, this dance, I think... Oh, okay. First of all, the way he looks at her while they're dancing is everything. <laughs> oh, yes. And the way she kind of giggles and doesn't know where to look while he's full on staring at her with a look of wonder in his eyes, mm. it's magic. It's end game. <laughs> yeah. And as a fan, like after, as a fan who watched it like weekly and toughed out the summers and made it through four years, as a fan, you can't really imagine it getting better than this. Exactly. It was the perfect song choice, the perfect shots, the perfect camera angles, the ter- the perfect dynamic between the two. It was just great. It was, a, it was great television. It really, it really was. I agree. And it, it was just, it was, uh, oh, it was, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. To this day, every time I watch this episode and that scene in particular, I uh, I just think of all the work that went into crafting this perfect moment. Yeah. Like, the way they were, I don't know if the actors, like, took liberties or the way they were instructed to behave, like, Lorelai kind of giggling and Luke, like, not breaking eye contact because he needs her to know, like, I'm serious, you know, and her being su- kind of surprised that he wants to dance with her in the first place. It was just perfection. Yes. Uh, and too many my, feelings, honestly. That's why you can't put it into words. It's just feelings. Yeah, I'm just like, ah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I, I, yeah. And the song, the song that we hear again during their actual wedding, Reflecting Light by Sam Phillips, the song is also just so perfect. It is. Uh, the mu- honestly, you don't notice it a lot because we're used to like the, we're used to like the la la la's when in- important things happen. And then yeah. when they actually incorporate music with words it's like yeah they know what they like they know what they're doing the music department was uh not even music department whoever any writer who who's you know can suggest a song i think they knew what they were doing yeah and like i always say when i'm watching gilmore girls every time the la la's come on you know it's a serious moment but every time a song with lyrics comes on shit's about to go down <laughs> so yeah um so when Luke's walking her back home after their evening, he properly asks Lorelai out, and I swear the entire fandom sighed in relief. Like, it's fucking happening, guys. <laughs> I do have to say, I was pretty bummed the first time around when they didn't at least kiss, because I was like, come on, we're so close. <laughs> like I said, I had trust issues. I'm like, it's just, a, it's yeah. just another, it's just another red herring. It's a fake out. It's not happening. For sure. But, you know, you just know that they were saving something big for the finale at this point. Yeah. Because they've had this perfect moment at the wedding. It's a proper date ask out at the end of the night. 
and it's just you know something is coming in the finale. Mm-hmm. Um, which which we're just gonna put a pin in that because again, too many... we're gonna we're gonna stop talking about that now because there's there's it it gets so much better. Too many um, things were in our feels. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about the last scene of the episode. And you know something super dramatic is going to happen when the final scene of the show is not the Luke and Lorelai storyline? Okay, but first do we want to do a prelude to the final scene of the of the last interaction between Luke and Jess? Because that tears all, all the time, every time. Yeah, but I just, yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, I just, the reason I bring it up is because you know, your show usually, especially during towards the end of the season, your show, each individual show usually ends with something big happening, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that in this episode, it wasn't the date ask out between Luke and Lorelai. No. You're just like whole alarm bells going off in your head right now. And I think maybe like, that's why I also had oh trust issues the first time. <laughs> I think that's why I also had trust issues the first time around because you like that wasn't like if that had been like the final scene before we then see, you know, executive producer Amy Sherman, you know, flash before our eyes. I think if if if, like that had been the last scene, I would have been like, oh, crap, like something like like it's actually happening. But like the fact that they saved the, you know, the actual final scene, which, you know, more tears. But yeah. uh, so, yes, I do want to talk about the scene between Luke and Jess. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was kind of jarring seeing that scene where, you know, he's like, I like movies. Uh, no, he goes, I can like movies if you like movies. And then going right away to Luke and Jess saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, OK, this is a weird place to end it. But then whatever. So th- I was saying to myself, this is a weird place to end it. But then it didn't end the conversation that Luke and Jess have. Mm-hmm. Are you eating? No, I was. What I thought you were gonna say something. I was like, yes, continue. Okay, sorry, because it sounded like uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you eating right now? <laughs> yes, I'm eating my feelings. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, the conversation that Luke and Jess have is very. It's emotional. Yes. I think it was very well done in terms of getting these two men who are not big talkers. Um, to admit in their own way that they're there for each other and they love each other and they're they're gonna be okay. Yeah, and like you said earlier, when you know Jess helps him pick up the tie and little things like that, because he can. I you said it was because Jess can sense he's nervous, which I, which I only kind of realized later on, because to me it was just that was kind of their bond that they had, that they had made all, over all that time living together. Like they, they just knew each other and their mannerisms. So like when, uh, you know, Jess comes down to say, I'm going to get batteries, just like, just these like little bit ban- like banalities that they have together. Cause they've lived together for so long. It's, they're just, mm-hmm. they have, the, they have this bond. Doesn't mean they, they like each other, but which they do, but like, you know what I mean? They have that. They just have a, a natural bond that they fall into because they, they know each other having lived together. Um, so that's when, like he says, Oh, like he chooses the tie for him. I think it's just because he knows Luke. It's like, oh, this one. Just like you know, as if like a a son would say to his parent or something, or like just two people that are close. And you're like, oh, this one. Like if, if you were having trouble choosing a shirt, I'd say that one. You know, like something like that. No, for um, sure. But I but I also think the reason I said he can sense that he's nervous is because you know he knows that Luke clearly bought the books for someone, right? 
Yeah, and then only in this last scene did I realize upon, you know, taking notes and analyzing, I'm like, oh, that's what, like, he realized that Luke was gearing up the courage to ask out Lorelai, and then it was like, you just see, you can just see it in Jess's eyes, he's like, he's, he's happy that his uncle finally did it, because I think he, he knew, as everyone else knew this whole time, <laughs> Luke is crazy for Lorelai, so I think he was happy for him, then he finally plunged at least the first step into the deep you know of asking of like you know, like we said not asking her out full on but i think he was, him asking her at the wedding was like testing the waters he's like yeah. want to do this again and she's like oh, okay um yeah <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah i think um they're definitely Jess and Luke are definitely in a much better place than they were when Jess left abruptly after getting his car fixed right yeah um you know Luke made it clear that he was still there for him by giving him money or whatever. But this is a much better place where there's actual goodbyes. Jess is like, here's my number. It's permanent. Like, call me, you know? Um, And I think uh, for Luke, um, you know, there are many, many, many instances, and I've I've named them, but there are many times where I think he's failed as a parent. Yeah. um, Or made mistakes, I should say. I, I wouldn't say fail. I think this is a really, really good parenting moment. Sometimes you just need to say, I'm here. You know? Yeah, it's like, just all, like, you know, nothing, nothing was necessarily forgiven or forgotten, but it's no. like, just Luke saying, you know, I'm here. I think it was just over the last two episodes in general, not even, like you said, it was so different when he first reappeared to come get his car. They were at each other's throats like they always had been. And, but just over the course of the, just the conversation, the dialogue they allowed each other to have these last two episodes, it's like, He's just saying, I'm here. And he's noticing, like, he's noticing that Jess is trying, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, Like I said earlier, I think he realizes, you know, okay, so he didn't stay in high school like I wanted him to. Like, so he's not the Ronald Reagan-esque child that I wanted him to. Like, he's going to be okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, he's going to be okay. He's making an effort. He's a good kid. Yeah, even then, I think it's bold to assume that... I think it's still bold to for Luke or Liz or any, or any adult in Jess's life to assume that, oh, he's fine, because that's what I mean. Like, when I said not no, all is given and forgotten, because there's still... I think Luke and Liz both need to take some responsibility for Jess's current state and current place in life, which they don't, so... Yeah. But that's... No, we've already, listen, we've already argued that to death, so... <laughs> don't get me wrong. I 100% agree with you. I think there's still... A lot of responsibility that needs to be um, taken by both, like, all the adults in his life. But when I say, like, he's going to be okay, Luke says he's going to be okay, I think, for me, it's, maybe I didn't phrase it properly, but for me, it's saying, like, Luke is realizing, you know, despite everything, despite all the hurt I know he's felt, he's got a good head on his shoulders. You know what I mean? Like, he's not, like, this menace that the town has made him out to be. Yeah, exactly. So, that's just where where I stand on that. Okay, so, like I said, I'm like, okay, weird place to kind of end this. And then we flash to the actual final scene of the episode where Rory and Dean are walking back to her dorm room. And I swear to God, Jeffrey, when I first watched this, (laughs) I was like, motherfuckers, (laughs) do not do what I think you're about to fucking do. Oh, wow. Buckle up next week, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, well, number one, buckle up next week. Number two, it was... 
I remember being in shock the first time I watched this. In shock that Jess showed up? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, me, like, it just, it, even even now, like, watching this earlier today in preparation for recording, I'm like, every time I watch the last scene with Rory and Jess, it's just sad, and I get, I just get chills, because I'm like, like, Yeah, goosebumps. I'm an emotional wreck. <laughs> Because especially now we've analyzed his character so much. And, I, you know, I loved him before we started analyzing and we started this podcast. So it's like, just makes it all the more emotional. <laughs> 100%. Um, okay, so Gene walks Rory home. They begin to have a conversation about his marriage. And Rory asks what I think is a really important question. And that is, where does Lindsay think you are? Oh. Um, right? Because the last we heard, they were forced to meet in an alley because Lindsay doesn't want Dean seeing her. Yeah. And I think in this moment, she's really working up the courage to ask Dean about his life and to, like, kind of gauge, like, are you really happy being married at 18, working all the time, lying to your wife? Like, what is this? And, and, not, to bl- way- and not to blame Rory, but she but she knew that his wife said that she didn't want them seeing each other, and she still played with fire by calling him. So 100%, I was just about to say, I'm not letting Rory off the hook here. Yeah. Because, yes, Dean is a married man, and what he's doing is shady, but you called him. Yeah. And out of all the people that you could have called, you called him. So I don't think she gets to act all high and mighty when, I'm not going to say she's as guilty as he is, but she definitely has a hand in this deception, right? Yeah, and especially since we talked about she was nostalgic for her former perfect self, and you, mm-hmm. but you're kind of further tarnishing that image by actively calling your ex-boyfriend whom you know his wife doesn't want you to see yes by saying can you come and pick me up like exactly okay girl girl (laughs) girl (laughs) um okay so just before dean is about to answer this question jess shows up and dean gets angry as he does and can we all appreciate the ridiculousness of Dean being upset to see Jess when you are married, sir? Married and you have you haven't had a haircut in five years, apparently. Sir, fix your hair. Okay, well, Jess shouldn't talk. He looks dirty, but. Okay, but I don't know. I like, he does look dirty. He does look like he needs a bit of a shampooing, but. <laughs> he looks so greasy. Yeah, I know, but I find like. I'm biased. I'm definitely biased. No, but Dean's hair is definitely worse. Like, yeah. But sir, you are married. This isn't high school. You can't. You you don't like the audacity. <laughs> the lion, the witch, and the audacity of this bitch. Yeah, seriously. Oh my god. So Rory insists that Dean leave, um, and he does. Thank you for baby Jesus. Um. <laughs> And you, can, Jess, you can see in his eyes, though, he's just he's just mad that he was, like, I don't know, having this weird throwback moment with Rory, and all of a sudden Jess shows yeah. up, and it's like, I'm guessing all those all those old angry feelings reappeared yeah, for him. Yeah, now we're the- really in high school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Dean leaves, and Jess, looking very broken, is begging Rory, begging Rory to run away with him. And this is just one of those scenes that sits so heavy on your chest, even all these years later. Because, yeah, yeah, to me, up until this point, Jess is genuinely trying. So he's trying to put the past in the past with his mother. He's apologizing to Luke and and telling him that he appreciates him. 
And I think he gets too caught up in what that feels like. Like, I think when you let go of certain things, you kind of feel a weight lifting off of you. And yeah. I think he was, like, kind of rolling with the punches. He's like, oh, this feels good. Like, I'm going to go do something else that feels good. Yeah, okay. I, want, I wanted to ask you, though, because I didn't realize this. Um, and I didn't realize this until, like, we started analyzing, obviously. But mm-hmm. when you watch, because I, because anytime, like, I find that I, the way that I watch when I'm, like, pre- like preparing to record and the way that I watch, like, for leisure <laughs> is two, diff- two completely different lenses. So yeah. anytime that I've watched just like from for my own for my own pleasure, I I've never picked up on like I guess the foreshadow that you know Jess or Luke gave Jess the the self help books I'm guessing to guess you know make sense of his feelings for Rory, and mm-hmm. then we see him and then in this episode we see him reading the book. Lorelai finds sees the book in his bag like the like the self help book plays a part in Jess's presence in Stars Hollow here. Yeah. And then, obviously, having analyzed the episode, the signs are clear that he was gearing up to make a move with Rory, I guess. Otherwise, why would he have been reading the book? You know, like, I, maybe like you said, it was he just he felt strong ha- having completed the wedding in one piece. He had a good moment. He had a good moment with his uncle. He's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do something else now. So maybe he was like gearing up the courage and was deciding whether or not he was actually going to like pro- proclaim his love for Rory but either way I didn't actually like I don't pick up the didn't really pick up on the signs until now that like reading like this the presence of the self-help book kind of indicated that he was gearing up to like like leading up to this final scene I guess yeah and I think I think he kind of misreads the situation oh 100 <laughs> percent no but meaning like I think so in the beginning I was talking about sometimes put things under the rug and they stay there and they cause trauma and other times it's okay to let things in the past stay in the past mm-hmm. so I think with his mother Jess realizes he's never gonna get that closure from Liz where she says yeah you know what I fucked up no you know? Never. so he has to kind of come to terms with the fact that it is what it is at least she's in a good place now and I have to let that go same thing for Luke I don't think Jess is ever expecting Luke to say, like, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have given you an ultimatum and kicked you out, but I am still here for you. So I think he totally misread the situation and was like, you know what, maybe Rory and I can let the past be the past and just start fresh. Yeah. But unfortunately, sometimes sometimes that doesn't work. Um, And I just want to talk about the dialogue in this scene. Because I have the dialogue with me, by the way. Of course you do. <laughs> I printed this dialogue, everybody. <laughs> she printed the dialogue. Even uh, I even I don't do that, okay? <laughs> I printed the dialogue because, number one, Milo did this amazingly. Oh, no argument for me, ever. No, but I mean, like, up until this point, you're like, ah, oh, teen drama, it's Milo, whatever. No. Where's his Emmy? <laughs> That's my line. <laughs> well, you know, I, it was just so beautifully done. Um, and, and, and not a lot of words, you know, not, not like a full blown monologue, just, you know, so Rory says, what do you want? Jess says, I don't know. I just wanted to see you talk to you. I just, and then he like pauses. So this also kind of tells me that he didn't really know what the fuck he was doing either. He just really needed to see her and he didn't have a plan basically. Right. Yeah. 
So then Rory says, what? He says, come with me. What? Come with me. Where? I don't know. Away. Jess, what the fuck? Anyways, okay. And then he goes, Rory says, are you crazy? And Jess says, probably. Do it. Come with me. Don't think about it. I can't do that. You don't think you can, but you, but, but you can. You can do whatever you want. And then she says, it's not what I want. And Jess, and here's where I think he's starting to lose her a little bit. <laughs> Jess says, it is. I know you. And Rory says, you don't know me. And for me, that's so true because it's been a year. And you don't know how much she's changed, right? Yeah. And, like, it's definitely, like you said before, he's misread the situation. He's let his, And what makes it all the more heartbreaking is that he is letting his own his own emotions cloud what he knows about Rory cuz he know like he knows Rory like he says better than anyone and he would know that she's not just going to up and leave Yale her exactly. her, dream, her dream of going to university she's not just going to like leave that to run away with him so i think that's that's why it's so much you just, you just, you just know that's why it makes it so much sadder it's like oh he that, like oh sweetie <laughs> yeah i know it's it's really heartbreaking. So he says, look, we'll, we'll go to New York. We'll work. We'll, we'll live together. We'll be together. It's what I want. It's what you want, too. And here's where she starts just going, no. <laughs> and Jess continues, I want to be with you, but not here, not this place, not Stars Hollow. We have to start new. And Rory says, there's nothing to start. You're packed. Your stuff is all in boxes. It's perfect. You're ready. And I'm ready. I'm ready for this. You can count on me now. I know you couldn't count on me before, but you can now. You can. Oh, my God, Jess. Tissue, please. I now need tissue. Exactly. It's like, I'm going to go sob. And then Rory says, no. And he says, look, you know we're supposed to be together. I knew it the first time I saw you two years ago. And you know it, too. I know you do. And Rory just keeps repeating no. (laughs) And then Jess says, don't say no just to make me stop talking or make me go away. Only say no if you really don't want to be with me. No. And then his face. I'm picturing his face in my brain right now. Oh, my God. (laughs) His face and then the fucking darkness of executive producer Amy Sherman motherfucking Palladino. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, really, Amy? <laughs> that oh. should be that should be our new theme song. Just you yelling, really, Amy? Oh, <laughs> oh. I'm so upset. <laughs> so I many mean, feelings, you guys. <laughs> I mean, come on, that dialogue. I'm glad you printed it out because it needed it needed to be said. <laughs> like I just it. Like I said, it's not crazy long dialogue, and this maybe happens in the span of 30 seconds, but it's just so well done. It really is, and watching it for the first time, I remember thinking, hoping, praying, it wasn't the end of Jess altogether, which it, and it, which we know it isn't, but we don't yeah. see him again for a whole other season and a half, not even, no, a season and ish, so... It's it's but when you think of it this way, it's, it was the end of the original era of Jess. You know, like we see him again yeah. later, but it's in the future and things are much much different. So yeah. lo- looking back now, in, in retrospect, the scene with Luke, like that was a goodbye, and then this was the final showdown. And the writers knew what they were doing by plunging their pens into our hearts. 
Holy shit, I'll never recover. <laughs> oh my god, it's just, it's too much. It's too much. So many feels. <laughs> yeah. And then before we wrap up, I just want to mention some episode facts. Please. Um, so I know I had mentioned in a previous episode that viewership had dropped quite a bit in season four. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to put that in context, this episode reached 4.6 million people, and that was the highest number since episode 18, which got 5 million. But before that, season three had really averaged about 5.5 per episode. Mm-hmm. It was down to about 4.3 per episode in season four. Um, and because I believe this episode was set up so beautifully in terms of Luke and Lorelai's relationship, mm-hmm. 5.6 million people, so 1 million more, tuned in for the season finale. So I think the producers and writers were definitely going for an end things with a bang strategy in the hopes of not only, you know, getting viewership up, but getting renewed. Uh, for sure. Yeah, after seeing um, a dip in the viewership. Yeah, and I think no, knowing our own history of uh, posting and uh, unearthing original WB promos on YouTube, we know yeah. for a fact that there must have been a thousand of Luke and Lorelai are actually going to happen yeah, next no. week on Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and then just as a side note, on November 4th, 2016, uh, the New York Times columnist Margaret Lyons wrote a column about which episodes to rewatch to get ready for the revival, which was premiering three weeks from then. Right. And so in season four, she recommended only the last three. Uh, and this one in particular saying these are the three of the best, most important episodes of the show. Every important relationship invo- evolves somehow over these three. Yeah, I and would I, agree. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that at all. <laughs> Especially now you pointed out, like, in in episode 21 specifically, we see so many relationships, like, so many family dynamics in flux. Yeah, yeah. So that's, so, yeah, um, I would argue. Like, especially since we always, we always say, like, this is, like, exemplary of, of the dynamic in the show at large. So, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So would I. <laughs> and so that's what I had for you guys. Um, anything else you wanted to say for this episode? Oh, I think we need to wrap up now. We, we need to go let ourselves recover from... Oh, my God. I'm going to go cry into a pillow. <laughs> we, we need to let ourselves recover before next week. Oh, my God. Next week is the big the big one. <laughs> even though... It's the big one, yes, of course. No no argument for me, even though my husband is gone. So just leave me be. Please. Please. I need a moment. Okay. Well, you have a week. <laughs> um, and then pull yourself together. Get it together, Carol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like in Bridesmaids. Um, Carol, get it together, Carol. So funny. Um, where can they find us, Jeffrey? Um, they can find us on tweeters at Gilmore Podcast, on Instagram at Gilmore Girls Podcast. And you can email us, should you please, Gilmore Podcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next week for the season finale. Take care, guys. <laughs>